So you've uh, you just about made it. It's the last evening of our retreat. And I'm aware that tomorrow is the solstice. Tomorrow is the longest day of the year. If your room's anything like mine, the sunlight comes streaming in very early in the morning. And so, um, you know, the solstice is a, a time in the year that's marked by different people in different ways, you know, these great, um, what's the word, not edifices, um, like places like Stonehenge, you know, take the solstice into account in a very particular way with the architecture so that the sun comes in right at the moment in a particular way. And I, I was reflecting on how, how we don't mark a lot of things in our culture. We're pretty good with weddings and birthdays and Christmas. But there's so many passages that we go through in our lives where we feel like we, we enter something and we go through an experience that transforms us in some way, hopefully makes us more of who we are in some way. And we emerge and there's a sense of a passage that oftentimes we don't even name for ourselves. I actually think that it's a, it's a hunger in our culture if we had more opportunities to mark uh, passages through, through coming together in different ways of sharing and initiation, I think we would know more of who we are and be, um, be supported and have more of a framework for our unfoldment and our maturation. And so um, I just thought it was sweet that you're emerging from your retreat tomorrow on the longest day of the year. So in Buddhist cultures, there are, there are many tradi- traditions. There are, I mean, the, obviously there's traditions within the tradition. Buddhism is a tradition, and there's so many traditions that are part of the daily life for people in Buddhist cultures as well as for monastics. And traditions are, when something's a tradition, it continues to be practiced no matter what the particular norms are of a Society, And it's really a power that we find in tradition because it cuts through our habits. Tradition often can cut through our identifications in a way that helps us remember what matters most to us. And tonight I'll be speaking about taking refuge, the practice of taking refuge, which Howie led us in our first night together. We chanted the refuges, and I would like to explore with you uh, more of, of your experience of the refuges and how this may support you at home in daily life. Because we don't just take refuge once. We don't just, oh, I, I took refuge, okay, that's done with. <laughs> you know, it's an ongoing relationship. The refuges are alive, just like, just like the Dalai Lama keeps practicing meditation. It's alive, it's a practice. Refuge is something that we um, need to keep coming home to because as human beings, we are designed in a way where we, I believe, we are, it's like it's innate, this searching for refuge. It's an innate part of the human experience, whether it's conscious or not. And as your path deepens and unfolds, your relationship to the refuges will deepen and unfold. And this is a topic I really love teaching on because the refuges are so alive in my life. And I really think my whole path of practice, you know, I, I've talked about it as a refinement, a joy, and it's really a, a, a knowing an ever-deepening refuge that lives nowhere other than my own heart and coming to know more directly the true source of peace and ease in this life. So refuge is powerful as a practice, not just a concept or an idea, but as a practice that we, that we touch and that we let ourselves rest within. William James says the first word in every religion is help. 
Can you relate? Was there some help? <laughs> Please help me be happier that brought you to this practice. Let yourself actually feel it so it's not just something we, we, we jet over, but let yourself just take a minute and remember what, what did that look like for you? What was its flavor for you? What brought you to this practice and the, the longing, both the longing and intuiting of refuge that lives in that? Just let yourself remember that. It's, it's, it's important to come, to come back to that and to remember that and to reflect. And the concept and practice of refuge is central to the Buddhist path. It's actually part of... Um, you don't need to consider... It doesn't matter if you're a Buddhist or not here. Nothing we're doing is, is based in doctrine. We're not asking you to believe anything. Classically, taking refuge is part of really entering the Buddhist path in many different forms. When, when we teach secular mindfulness, taking refuge is not part of it. So there's a lot of beauty and goodness in terms of calm and non-harming and um, you know, growing wisdom. But taking refuge involves a, a much deeper relationship to the practice and to how we live our lives. And so there's an energy there for, for me that I experience, an energy of support in the act of taking refuge. Because in this human life, we need refuge. Life gets stormy, both internally and externally. Internally, just think of some of the storms you've sat out or walked out in your days here. You know, spells of self-doubt or self-judgment, difficulty in the body, not sure you should stay here. Maybe I'm crazy, but I, I have a hunch that this is something that's been happening. Um, and the feeling that we, that we need refuge when we open the newspaper and hear about some of the really great pain and suffering in this world. This world has such incredible beauty and joy and such uh, deep deep pain and suffering. So in order to find a way to live with one another in relationship and to live in these bodies and to work with the places where we're addicted and scared and feeling alone, um, refuge is essential to be happy in a fuller way, like how we talked about last night. There's a sense that just going after the next sense pleasure, we have to keep going. We can't rest how he talked about how we miss that moment of when it's, we, we, we get something pleasant, oh, it's so good. And then there's actually this of dissatisfaction and we miss that, we keep filling it. So the kind of refuge I'm talking about is the refuge that supports uh, the highest happiness that Howie was talking about last night, the happiness of peace. So um, we're seeking a refuge that can hold this world of life and death, this world of change. I looked up the, the, um, the etymology of the word solstice, and, it, and it, it was something about the sun standing still. And it's like this sense of, oh, it, looks, it seems like it all stands still. But when you really look, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not like that. It, it's a process of constant motion, and the tides turn at a certain point. But I don't know, and I'm not a, I'm not a scientist, but I, I, I would be pretty surprised if, it, if there was actually standing still because there's so, 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 okay. I'll, tr- I'll trust that. <laughs> there's, there's so, 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 so much change um, in this world. And so refuge has everything to do with learning how to be at home in this inevitable process of change that is the human experience. The flavor of the refuge I'm talking about, Rumi speaks to in his poem, This We Have Now. 
This we have now is not imagination. This is not grief or joy, not a judging state or an elation or sadness. Those come and go. This is the presence that doesn't. This is the presence that doesn't. When grapes turn to wine, they're wanting this. When the night sky pours by, it's really a crowd of beggars, and they all want some of this. This we have now. That's the flavor of the refuge of this path. Because now, as you, as you know by now, <laughs> now is where we heal. Now is where we love. Now is where we open to truth. Now is where, that's, now is it. Now is it. The past, the future, ideas in the mind. This we have now. So we're growing our our capacity. What you've been doing on this retreat is growing this capacity to know the refuge of a kind-hearted awareness, a refuge of embodied presence. And this is this movement that Howie talked about last night from the small self-view to the much, much larger view that allows a sense of equanimity, that allows a sense of knowing have we said this in here? We use so many things, I forget how, what we have and haven't said, but something along the lines of that when you, you know, when you know you're the depths of the ocean, the waves aren't such a problem. There's a 14th century woman who is said to be a, a Buddhist saint called Lal Dead, and she lived in Kashmir, what is now Kashmir. And she says this in her search and her finding of of the kind of refuge that is the highest happiness. She said, I was passionate. I searched far and wide. And the day the truth found me, I was at home. The day the truth found me, I was at home. So I'm kind of preaching to the choir. You can hear how we're saying the same things in so many different ways. It gives a new meaning to that, that saying, all sickness is homesickness. What, what we really mean by our, our true place of home. And the word refuge in Latin, I found this really interesting. Because if you just hear the word refuge, at least for me, there's this idea of, of go, going someplace. Like being here and going someplace to find refuge, someplace other than here. But when you actually look up, um, well, the actual meaning of the word refuge in, in Latin, re, re means back and fuge means flee. So that gives the word a different, I understand it differently, because it's a sense of fleeing back. It's not a sense of going somewhere else, but coming back, back home, returning remembering. That's the practice of sati, of mindful awareness. Remembering. And so we've talked about how the mind has this tendency to go out and look for a home because it doesn't know its own nature. And we're practicing um, we're practicing but we're, we're really making room for nature to show itself, for wisdom to show itself, to, to know the power of awareness. And so with refuge, in a sense, we're not going out to get refuge anywhere. We live in it. This is such a deep <coughs> reframe to the Western mind. You know, the title of this talk could be Look No Further. Look No Further. So these three refuges that we, that we talk about, 
that Howie led us in the first evening, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. This is called the, the triple gem. They're like gems. They're that. They're way more precious than any gem you can ever hold in your hand that's a thing. But, but they're that quality um, of jewels, that precious. And as I talk about this, these are all different concepts and, and pointings back to the experience. So we use a concept, we use ideas of external refuge to point us back toward uh, the, the immediacy of, of, um, of what Rumi's talking about, of this we have now. The Buddha... In an external way, some people are really inspired by the story of the Buddha. Whether you understand this as, as historical fact or whether you understand it as something more like myth, the Buddha's journey speaks in its many dimensions to the human journey and to a lot of what we've experienced here looking for a deeper way, encountering struggles, getting some help, slacking off and working too hard and finding the middle ground, (laughs) (laughs) and developing enough trust in something, enough faith in something, um, to keep going. There's enough of a taste that we keep going Forward, but what that really is is making ourselves available for the Dhamma. So, the word Buddha means awake. I'm sitting, we are sitting in a Buddha field right here. It's not just the territory of this man who lived 2,600 years ago. Our nature is the same nature as Buddha, our nature is awake. You've had moments of feeling awake here, even if you felt really tired, really heavy, 99% of the time. From the interviews, we know that you have experienced moments of, that, of having a sense of what it means to be awake. Taking refuge in the Buddha represents the human ability to be composed, to be calm, to be alert, to be awake, to be responsive, ceaselessly responsive. So when we take refuge in the Buddha, we take refuge in our own capacity to awaken. And as I'm saying this, I'm meaning to keep inviting you to be doing this as I'm speaking. To take refuge in your own capacity to awaken, not as some idea out there, but as, as the truth. You can believe me or not. You can believe any of this or not. But, but um, we human beings, we have this consciousness that is capable of waking up. It's really precious, actually. It's pretty, it's pretty wondrous and mysterious. Um, so we take refuge in awakening being possible. We take refuge in in that possibility, the possibility of freedom. I walked down to the gratitude hall before the last sitting. I never come to Spirit Rock without going to the gratitude hut, not the gratitude hall, the gratitude hut. How many of you have had a chance to visit the gratitude hut? Because if you haven't, I hope you go there. It's um, when, when we doubt our own capacity to awaken, this is a little bit refuge in the Sangha. I'll talk about that. But when I went down there, there's these pictures of um, human beings in our lineage who, and, and in many, many, not just, yeah, depends on how you hold the word lineage, but he, human beings on this path um, who have really served the Dharma, who have really um, showed up in their practice to awaken for the benefit of all beings. And, um, people like Deepama, 
and Tenzin Palmo, uh, Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Jumnian. Here's this picture of the Dalai Lama and Maha Gosananda, each are trying to bow lower than the other. So when, you, when I go down there and look at that, for me, when I, when I was practicing here on long retreats and struggling years ago, I would go down there and there was just this reminder that, no, I'm included in this. I may not, you know, be hanging up in the gratitude hut, but, but I, was, I felt included in it. I felt included in... Um, in the same field, in the same nature. There's a way that when we doubt our own capacity to wake up, it helps to look at a being who you feel some resonance with, who's had some degree of waking up, because it's our own mirror. These beings are our mirrors. In fact, that's it's teachers. You know, we can talk about this and that with the Dharma and the lists and ask you to memorize it or ask you to sit and walk, but a lot of what we're doing is, is mirroring back to you your own deepest nature, your own Buddha nature. So to have confidence in your own capacity to awaken, whether or not you feel like you know how, um, it's a great ally on the path. And when I spoke a few nights ago about, I think I talked about um, the bodhisattvas, bodhi awakened sattva, I mean, Yeah, no, I talked about bodhicitta. Thank you. I talked about (laughs) getting my words all mixed up. I talked about bodhicitta. A bodhisattva is a being who lives with the aspiration of bodhicitta, who lives with the aspiration to um, have a mind free from greed, hatred, and delusion for the benefit of all beings. And the Buddha did say it was possible. The Buddha did say it is possible to free the heart from greed, hatred, and delusion. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do it. So these beings, these bodhisattvas, um, live with with a you know this this vow to be a benefit for all to all beings. And one way, if that's something that resonates with your heart, you might play around with in your own life is just to consider, not to do it right now, but just to consider: do you do you live with a with a vow to use all that arises for your own awakening. And if you don't, to just ask yourself, why not? Because this path isn't like, you know, 60%. It, it works best when we, when we just let our hearts give ourselves to the path. So um, part of taking refuge in the Buddha may express itself as this wish or this commitment to oneself to use what arises to wake up. It's not so different than the wish of, may may I use this suffering to awaken compassion. It's kind of like baking bread, waking up. And we we can get really on fire and try all this stuff and work so hard but um, it all happens in its own natural timing if you make bread in a bowl you might throw together a bunch of ingredients some water and some flour some salt and yeast and whatever else that might be interesting and, and, and um, you know then we stir the ingredients together then when, when, um, when a person makes bread they need the bread they need the bread for quite a while turn it over, they handle it, they work it, they make it softer, and uh, then the bread has to go back in the bowl, and you might cover the bowl, and you wait a while, because the, the dough needs to rise. And eventually that, that, that bread can go in a pan and go in the oven and bake and become bread. And a really important part of the process of making bread is letting the bread rise, it sits there. You're not messing with it. If you mess with it, it gets, it's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> so you put in the ingredients, you do some work, like we've done here, and then you just let nature do its thing. Because um, to have a great loaf of bread, um, it just has to sit and rise for a while. 
And so this is important in terms of your work here and going home, not to be pressing forward too much, but to just let, let yourself know you've, you've turned all this over, you've been working this. You get to just let nature do its work, let the bread rise. My friend, Dara, Dara Williams, who is very dear to me, she, uh, we were talking about refuge a few weeks ago, and she said, yeah, refuge in the Buddha, to me it's like, she said, the Buddha's got my back. <laughs> if you knew Dara, I could hear that come out of her mouth. It was great. So there's a sense of the Buddha's, the Buddha's got our back, but, but that's actually part of ourselves. And to realize our, our Buddha nature, to take refuge in, in being awake, to love, really love the house that ego built and know the house is a house. We have to keep willing to, to not know who we are from time to time, or maybe all the time. We, um, we have to be willing to not know who we are in order to become more of who we really are. There's a, some words from Aura Glasser that I like. If we're afraid of who we are, we continually feel... Fr- Excuse me. If we're afraid of who we are, if we continually feel frantic about filling that space, anything to avoid that persistent unease beneath the surface of our lives... The fearlessness of the warrior comes from stepping again and again into open space with body, breath, and heart exposed. It is the fearlessness that is willing to be intimate with fear. The second refuge is taking refuge in the, in the Dhamma. Externally, this means, you know, it's, it's so awesome that we have this body of teachings. The Buddha made some incredible maps. He was such a natural teacher because so many of his teachings are in these wonderful, teachable lists. They're very clear. They're very precise. They're things that can be can be easily taught and I might have said this the other night but I mean could could you imagine trying to wake up in this way with no maps at all with nobody explaining quite what to do it it would be difficult to have the confidence and the faith and the trust so just that there that there are these that there are these precious liberating teachings that's one place of taking refuge in the dharma more deeply, taking refuge in the Dharma, I like to, to think of it as, a, as taking refuge in the practice of non-contention. Putting down the sword and the shield. Taking refuge in the practice of non-contention, even if the non-contention is with this really contentious beast that you feel like is going on inside your experience sometimes taking refuge in non-contention because when we, when we fight reality, when we fight what's actually happening, rea- reality always wins. It's exhausting. <laughs> Have you seen that? So we've talked in here about the, the, the job of, of the ego, the job of Sakaya Diddy personality view is this continual fussing with experience, continually messing with how things are to avoid that space of not knowing, to avoid that, um, yeah, that, that place where it might be less familiar. There's a, there's a saying that samsara, meaning this kind of, how we define samsara, something along, how did you define samsara? You gave a great definition. Well, the translation is endless wandering, but the endless cycle of becoming. Endless wandering, the endless cycle of becoming. Looking for the future that never <laughs> arrives. Um, some, I heard this, this um, that samsara is correcting. Samsara is correcting. 
what what those three words are talking about is the tendency to keep correcting our experience, manipulating it, all these little ways. And we do it out here, but we really do it to ourselves. Samsara is correcting. So um, taking refuge with the Dharma in the Dharma is is this process that, that we've been doing here of learning to be with things as they are without adding more reactivity. A moment of mindfulness, mindful awareness, has within it, in a certain sense, refuge in the Dharma. Just a moment of, of being present. And taking refuge in the Dharma, the way things are, non-contention, it's, it's a... Sometimes we are very... Uh, we're very loyal to our contention. We're very loyal to our suffering because it can feel so powerful. You know how that feels? That sense of like some, some, some conditioning would rather turn against ourselves or be hard on ourselves than um, feel the insecurity beneath that directly. There's a way that being in contention with things, um, it, it lets us have a sense of separation. And so there is a time, there is a time to, to just put down those things that you know don't serve you. There is a time to be more loyal to the freedom that's here than the suffering that's here. Even if you're not quite sure what that looks like, there's, a, there's an inner sense of how that is. So taking refuge in the Dharma means your own life. Taking refuge in the Dharma does not just happen at Spirit Rock or in California. (laughs) (laughs) Taking refuge in the Dharma um, really, really means we start where we are. So it might be that you start with feeling jangly or you start with parenting or you start with um, working or being retired or your relationship or whatever it is, it really means um, starting right where we are. No matter what is happening, there is something in us that's, that's awake, that's luminous. Ajahn Chah says, do you guys know who Ajahn Chah is? He's, he's a teacher to many of our teachers, a teacher to Jack and to Ajahn Sumedho. And did you sit with Ajahn Shah? No, did not. He's a, a great, great Thai forest teacher. And he says this, he says, you become the Dhamma. You practice the Dhamma, you act as the Dhamma, and it's gradual. It's organic, and before we know it, we're soaked in it. Drop by drop, it suffuses our life and we suffuse it. Our lives become suffused by awakening, and we give back. So some of the experience of taking refuge in the, in the Dhamma shifts from being something to being, being aware of something. It has a lot to do with awareness. When in the body, you know, you, you may feel like you have more of a felt sense of being here. You feel more present in the body, more grounded in the body than the first day. So there's a sense that we become aware of the sensations, but there's also the feeling of the presence that's here with the sensations. So when there's pain in the body, that's a very real usually unpleasant experience. But it's not the totality of the experience because there's awareness as well. And when there's awareness, a momentum of awareness, there's a sense of there just being a larger holding for any particular (coughs) experience of sensation. Have Have you experienced that some this week? Yeah. Larger holding. It doesn't mean that the sensations go away but there's a much larger field through which they can move. And sometimes in these bodies, we feel like we're born into a pain bag. 
it can feel like that sometimes, living in these bodies and being on retreat. And, you know, I would wish for you to be born into a bliss bag in some ways. <laughs> but, um, but even with pain, there, there's another element that's here. That's not the totality of the experience. Or with thought, you know, you sit down to meditate and thoughts are coming and going. But um, we, can, we can get so focused on the objects, you know, out here, getting it, getting it, getting it, that, that, that we can miss um, the knowing itself. How he pointed us right into, into the knowing, that territory of knowing itself in, um, in big mind. Because awareness, awareness comes and goes, but, but it's nature is unchanged. Pasaka Ki is a Thai woman who, um, very highly realized, great teacher. She, she describes a little bit of what I'm calling refuge in the Dhamma as, a, as an inward staying, unentangled knowing, all outward going, cast aside. An inward staying, unentangled knowing. So direct, so simple. So we take refuge in the Dharma. And the Dharma really takes refuge in us too because it's through us that, that the Dharma expresses itself. So we, you know, we talk about these fairly impersonal truths of impermanence and suffering and non-self, but they're, they're expressed through us in such a personal way. How we talked about this with the molliness last night. Molly just being molly. And so... As the practice matures, um, taking refuge in the Dharma and, and the Dharma taking refuge in us looks so many different ways. It doesn't look just one way. This is a because there's such a tendency to think that um, because of the teaching of of non-self to think that somehow uh, awakening looks like it has to be still or serious or I don't know awakening can look so many different ways this is this is uh, it's a little long but I'm, I'm going to read it because I think it's really good this is this is by Joy Mann who has a PhD in the Buddhist psychology of the Theravada canon of the Pali canon pardon me which is basically the body of teachings that inform what we're doing here so she has a PhD in the the psychology of the Buddha within that, the Buddhist psychology. And this is, this is um, something she wrote about the Buddha's own self-concept. At a recent conference whose theme was the psychology of awakening, Buddhism, science, and psychotherapy, many of the participants expressed their confusion regarding how the Buddha could function in the world without a self. Because they were Buddhists, they were trying to follow the teaching and to achieve or to imitate what they imagined this form of functioning could be. Does that sound familiar at all? (laughs) I thought they had missed the point. What the texts show in the character of the Buddha is someone with a very advanced self-concept. His self-esteem is perfect. He's gone beyond doubt. He knows and he's confident of his knowledge, he expresses himself with conviction. When the Buddha talks of himself in the first person, he does so with clarity. He has a strong sense of identity and knows very well who he is. He gives accounts of his life experiences in the first person. He gives accounts of his spiritual capacities in the first person. He says that he's a Buddha and what a Buddha is. He discusses at ease and in full equality with kings and other notables, and he defends himself and his teaching against unjust accusations and false representations. It's clear that the Buddha's self, as this concept is understood in contemporary psychology and psychotherapy, namely 
a clear sense of identity, the ability to function competently and realistically in the world, to have a standard of ethics, to achieve one's goals, to interact with people, to make good choices and so forth, that this was functionally remarkably well-developed, as one would expect. She goes on to just say that neither psychotherapy nor meditation is possible unless the sense of identity or ego is mature and well-grounded. Otherwise, there's nothing to change and nothing to go beyond. What kind of a self, then, did the Buddha not have? I think this is so good, what she says. She's just talking about that uh, <coughs> as we take refuge in the, in the Dhamma and know we are not separate, there's, there's a higher level of functioning. There's uniqueness. There's personalness. There's very much, uh, um, whatever your name is, m- molliness, individuality. Not the acquisition of individuality, just individuality that is here. So the, the third of the refuges is, is, uh, is the refuge of Sangha, community. Mother Teresa says, we have forgotten we belong to each other. And the refuge, really taking refuge in, in Sangha is, is like a medicine for how nuclear and alone we can feel in this culture. Taking refuge in the, in the Sangha can mean you know, just taking refuge in, in the fact that we're not doing this alone. Have any of you at any point in this retreat opened your eyes during a sitting and wanted to get up because you had some big thing going on and looked around and seen that everybody else was sitting and realized that whatever big thing it was would pass? There's a sense of strength that we have when we come to practice together in this way. It's, it's palpable. Taking refuge in the Sangha can be, can be as I understand it, it can be so much bigger than just, uh, than just human life. I... I teach a lot at this re- retreat center in northern New Mexico called Vallecitos Mountain Ranch, and it's this, it's a, it's a, I love, it's my favorite place to teach because it's this, it's wild, it's such wild land, it's this inholding in the middle of Carson National Forest and all these mountains, and um, there, are, there are a lot of old growth ponderosas on the property, huge, huge, maybe like the redwoods here, these huge ponderosas, and there's one tree that we call the Buddha tree, and this tree is, is we don't know exactly how old, but she's, old, she's more than 800 years old. This huge tree. And that means that this tree, I wish you could see her, that this tree, I mean, all these people can't even fit their arms around her at once, has been standing since before Christopher Columbus's ships landed on the East Coast. Just to give some perspective. This tree's been standing a really, really long time, and yogis go to this tree, the Buddha tree, and just sit at the trunk of this tree. We always take yogis to this tree, and we do some practice out there because there's a sense that it gives us a larger context and space and time for our own life. And when you think about how, how much this land has held our practice together, there's a sense of... a um, the Sangha being a, an e- ecological body, more than just a human body, an ecological body that we're practicing with so many other beings, so many other life forms. Taking refuge in the Sangha classically means taking refuge in, in beings who, who are fully awake, the Sangha of awakened beings, or, or you know, taking refuge in a community, of awakened, awakening beings. And it doesn't mean that you have to take refuge in every person. Like if somebody in the community is doing something harmful, you don't maybe 
take refuge in them exactly, but we're taking refuge in this, in this uh, power of practicing together. Zen Master Dogen says, practicing together gives us strength. If there's just one log on a fire, the fire will be weak, whereas many logs make a fire strong and powerful. Many logs on a fire. It's a big fire, big fire of awakening. And, and so we can help each other to wake up when we are willing to lean into the power of community. This is really, really important. It's also important for you if you're new to retreat practice, going home, find some kind of community where you can, you can uh, be real with people. You can talk a little bit about your practice. For me, living in Durango, I, I am so fortunate to live in a community where we have a thriving sangha. And looking back on my practice, if I, if I had been practicing without the sangha, the path for me would have been much more difficult. Um, there's, there's a lot of pieces about ourselves that we only can know when they're mirrored in relationship. Difficult stuff and beautiful stuff. And we get our early sense of who we are from caregivers, and it's the collective field that wakes us up, that helps us see where we get stuck and mirrors our beauty to us. So taking refuge in the Sangha, I talked about the gratitude hut lineage. If this is something, some people connect with this, some people don't, but... You know, in doing this practice, we're, we're part of a lineage of beings for 2,600 years and beyond that have been um, awakening. And I, I really take heart when I'm struggling or I feel alone. I actually reflect on that. I, I, I can feel them beneath me. There's a feeling of being on their shoulders. So connecting with some sense of... Um, the unfoldment over time that allows us to be here now can be, can be helpful. The Buddha said, I do not see any one quality by which unarisen skillful qualities arise and arisen skillful qualities subsides. He's talking about, basically, he doesn't see one quality um, that supports the development of the wholesome, like friendship with admirable people. When a person is friends with admirable people, unarisen skillful qualities arise and arisen unskillful qualities subside. (laughs) So the essence of that is saying that spending time with uh, people who are committed to developing the wholesome is is a great and deep support for our practice. It's not just an extra. It's essential. And there's a way that uh, when, when you're with people who take refuge in the truth together, there's a way that the truth shows itself through these beings, and it just kind of becomes its own, its own body. Thich Nhat Hanh talks about the next Buddha as being Sangha. Maitreya, coming from the word metta, as, be, as being community. And that's very much, with where we're at, that's very much what our world needs, the realization of our interconnectedness and living from a place that expresses that. I can't travel with too many books, so I'm using another story from my favorite book, Tattoos on the Heart, (laughs) Um, about one way of taking refuge in Sangha. So Gregory Boyle is the father of this church. And he says that, that they made a decision not to stop homeless people from sleeping in the church at night. And he said once the homeless people began to sleep in the church at night, there was always the faint, faintest evidence that they'd been there. Come, Saturday, come Sunday morning, we'd foo-foo the place as best as we could. We'd sprinkle I love my carpet on the rugs and vacuum like crazy. We'd place potpourri and air wick around the church to combat this lingering, pervasive reminder that nearly 50 and up to 100 men had spent the night there. 
So he's talking about that it smelled. That's what they're talking about. <laughs> you got that? It stunk. <laughs> about the only time we used incense at Dolores Mission was on Sunday morning before the 7.30 mass crowd would arrive. Still as we tried, the smell remained. The grumbling set in, and people spoke about churching elsewhere. So he's talking with this person who's having a hard time with the smell. Wele Apata, smells like feet. Don Rafael booms out, smells like feet. He was old and he never cared what people thought. Then Father Boyle says, excellent. Why does it smell like feet? Because many homeless men slept here last night, says a woman. Well, why do we let that happen here? Es nuestro compromiso. It's what we've committed to do, said another. Well, why would anyone commit to that? It's what Jesus would do. Well, then what's the church smell like now? A man stands in bellows. It smells like commitment. (laughs) The place cheers. Guadalupe waves her arms wildly. Huele a rosas, smells like roses. The packed church roars with laughter and a newfound kinship that embraced someone else's odor as their own. The stink in the church hadn't changed, only how the folks saw it. The people at Dolores Mission had come to embody Wendell Berry's injunction, you have to be able to imagine lives that are not yours. So that's refuge and that's taking refuge in Sangha, putting up with the smell of feet, which is the smell of commitment, by holding a larger, a larger vision. The, the Bodhisattva vow is at work in here, to come together in community in a way that's for the benefit of all beings. It's, this stuff can, can be ordinary. It doesn't need to look like some big, glamorous, grand whatever. So... Just a few more minutes. Um, what, we're, what we're doing here, this is why what we're doing here is so, so, so important, because it's not enough to read about stuff. It's not enough to try and be. be. It, it, coming and sitting and spending time with our hearts and minds in this way is, is what um, brings these beautiful qualities to, our lo- to, to life. And it's about so much more than just having more of a calm happiness that makes our own lives easier. Really, everything, everything we're practicing here is in the direction of freedom, in, in the direction of peace, in the direction of the highest happiness. And with the refuges, I was, I was noticing how for myself the, the refuges are what I experience as a retrieval of the sacred that the refuges really are right here. And there's a way, this is, this is partly influenced by the great, great teacher, deepologist Joanna Macy. Some of you may be familiar with Joanna and her beautiful work. But there's a, there's a way that we project what is sacred out here. We project it up and out. And so we're always seeking outside of ourselves. And... She says, she says that, um, what is the sacred? It's the ground of our being. It's the whole of which we are a part. It's what imbues our lives with meaning and beauty. And so there's, there's huge long-term consequences with projecting the sacred externally. And the refuges are about connecting with what is beautiful and most true right in our own hearts, right in our own bodies. And this path is one of, if you relate to the word sacred, of taking the sacred back into your life. So it's, it's not outside of you. So the statues are your mirrors. So, so we take refuge uh, right here. I mean, you can feel it sitting right here. It's not in Howie or me or Spirit Rock or anything like that. It's, it's in a life as it is and trusting your own capacity and motivation and intention to meet life as it is supported 
by these refuges. And um, Joanna uses this metaphor about um, you know, like blood pressure, the heart pumping blood, systolic and diastolic, that, that life is this process of projecting the sacred outward and bringing it back into our hearts, that we go back and forth just like blood pumps through the heart. And we've kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's so out there that um, the words that, that, um, that she used is when the, when the sacred becomes too remote, you take it back in to let it lubricate your life. The heartbeat goes on, ever renewing our sense of what is holy. So there's a sense of um, this path giving us a means of realizing what is most beautiful about ourselves, realizing our own Buddha nature, realizing that we are life, not part of the web. We, we are the web. And it's this process of continuing to come home, continuing to let our intuition and trust and experience of the deepest refuge really guide our path. I'd like to close with a poem, how we shared the most powerful two lines of this poem in his, um, I think it was in, in the meditation this morning. But this is a poem that was written in 1947 by Donald Babcock called The Little Duck. Now we're ready to look at something pretty special. It's a duck riding the ocean a hundred feet beyond the surf. No, it isn't a gull. A gull always has a raucous touch about him. This is some sort of a duck, and he cuddles in the swells. He isn't cold, and he's thinking things over. There's a big heating in the Atlantic, and he is part of it. He looks a bit like a Mandarin or the Lord Buddha meditating under the Bodhi tree, but he has hardly enough above the eyes to be a philosopher. He has poise, however, which is what philosophers must have. He can rest while the Atlantic heaves because he rests in the Atlantic. Probably he doesn't know how large the ocean is. And neither do you. But he realizes it. Now what does he do, I ask you? He sits down in it. He reposes in the immediate as if it were infinity, which it is. That is religion, and the duck has it. He's made himself part of the boundless by easing himself into it just where it touches him. I like the little duck. He doesn't know much, but he has religion. So we'll just sit for for a minute or so. He reposes in the immediate as if it were infinity, which it is. He's made himself part of the boundless by easing himself into it, just where it touches him.
hope to see you back for an evening sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.